thinking about that slide and these people on this little journey up there. Uh, it's been a nice little journey we've had in the book of Philippians, and I hate to see it come to an end next week. But we're at some real critical verses uh, in the text, and maybe especially for us, especially as we think about this idea of contentment. And when you think about contentment, there's two primary ways you can think about it. Uh, the place to begin is to consider the contentment that was addressed by the African man who lived around 400 A.D., one of the most influential theologians in church history, a guy named St. Augustine. And St. Augustine is perhaps most well known for this phrase, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Augustine uh, understood something, that he had been made by someone, and until he found that someone, he was constantly going to be restless. And if you looked at Augustine's life closely, or maybe I should say if you just looked on the surface, you would have thought Augustine was somebody who shouldn't be restless. He should be content. He had a wonderful relationship with his mother. He was incredibly intelligent. He was a sought-after speaker. He was financially stable. He was able to travel in Europe. And Augustine lived and loved a woman uh, without ever having to make a lifelong commitment to her in marriage. So this is something that everyone wanted in the 4th century, and unfortunately, this is something many people are looking for in the 21st century. I'd I'd love to have a great relationship with my parents. I'd love to be financially stable and able to travel. I'd love to be a sought-after speaker. I'd love to be intelligent. I'd love to just love somebody, but just have sort of an out in case it doesn't work. So I don't want to get married. I just want to live with them. That's, That's the goal of a lot of people even living today. And as attractive as this was for Augustine, it turned out that he didn't find contentment. He was restless. It was never enough. The pleasures of the world that were temporarily satisfying, somehow they ran out quickly. And then all that changed when he met Jesus. And you can read about his encounter in his book called The Confessions. And he tells you very clearly his struggle, especially with sexual temptation and this idea of trying to find contentment or comfort. He was living in, in 386, he was living with his mistress in a wealthy Italian city named Milan. And in this city, there was a preacher whose name was Ambrose. And he went to listen to Ambrose. And this is how he describes him. In Milan, I heard Ambrose, his gifted tongue never tired of dispensing the sober intoxication of your word. Don't you love that? His gifted tongue as a preacher, it never tired of dispensing the sober intoxication. It was truth and pleasure together. Though Ambrose, through Ambrose, I heard your voice saying, I am the God who is, yet I was dragged away by my own weight. I was plunged into the things of the world. No one could interrupt my fierce struggle in which I was the only contestant. You feel, you feel that? Many of us have felt that, that there's a struggle, and really the biggest struggle is, is me. I'm the contestant that I'm fighting against. I was held back by my sin, and the sin whispered to me. Listen carefully and see if you've heard these words from your sin. 
you're going to miss us. Oh, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow and tomorrow? And then I heard a voice of a child in a nearby house. He repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. So I opened the scriptures and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall, which was Romans 13. Do not revel in drunkenness and lust, rather arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thoughts on nature's appetites. Imagine opening your Bible. And that's what you read if you're Augustine. I came to an end of the sentence and, and, and the light of contentment flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. There is perhaps a few people sitting here this morning that understand Augustine's experience. On the surface, you look like you have it all together. You have all the things the world would say. If you have these things, then you're, you're going to be content. And you have them, and yet somehow you're in this fierce struggle against yourself. You, you find yourself as the contestant really over your soul. And maybe you've said to yourself the same thing Augustine has said, Oh, tomorrow, just, I just need one more drink at this well, and then tomorrow I'll, I'll find my way to Jesus. And if that's you, I would plead with you to make tomorrow today. The only way you're going to find true contentment is by knowing Jesus Christ. Your heart will forever be restless until it finds its rest in you, in God. That's one way of thinking about contentment, but that's not really what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4. There's another side to contentment, and it's a kind of contentment that you have to learn, as he says, and it's a kind of a contentment that you can experience even if you're in prison. Paul's writing this letter from a prison cell. So he's saying, I've learned how to be content, how to be content in prison. And the key word there is it's something that's it's learned. It's not I meet Christ and then I just immediately get contentment. It doesn't work that way. I, I meet Christ and I found the person that I was made for. I, was, I found the person that has made me. I, I find myself in you and now I'm beginning to learn things. It's not like you just automatically download all these Christian virtues. They're things you have to learn. And one of the key things that Paul had to learn and he's telling us we have to learn is we have to learn how to be content so I want to walk through just this passage here carefully, make some observations, and then we'll make some applications at the end. The first thing you see here is this word rejoice. He says it in uh, verse 10, I rejoice. This is a theme of Paul's letter, and he's rejoicing particularly here because the church in Philippi that he planted has revived their concern for him. It's a, he says it. He, they've gotten some things together. They sent it through this person, Epaphroditus, and they've sent things. They've, this care team has sent stuff to Epaphroditus, much like Tara was saying today. We want a care team to send some things to Sarah because she feels like she's probably in prison at some level. She can't leave Romania. She's got some difficulties with her children, and it's helpful to receive a person, receive something coming to you. And so he's rejoicing that these supplies have arrived. And then notice in the second part of verse 10 and 11, he wants to clarify a couple of things. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. 
well, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He wants to make sure that he doesn't, they don't think, well, he just got forgotten. No, he knows they had, had him in his heart, but there was no opportunity. So he wants to clear that up. And then in verse 11, he wants to clear up this idea of not that I'm speaking of being in need. He didn't want the Philippians to think, well, he was discontent. And then when he got the supply, he was content. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, well, I'm rejoicing now that my personal needs are met. But when my personal needs are met, then I'm kind of cranky. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, I really have a, a stream of contentment that we'll talk about this week and next week, no matter what's happening on the surface. And then what follows in the rest of verse 11 through verse 13 are some of those profound words of the letter. And you can just see the little transition here in the word for. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for... That's the transition word, and then he's going to explain himself. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every circumstances. I've learned, you see it there again, the secret of being facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says it three times in every circumstance. How to abound, how to be brought low, how to live in plenty, how to face hunger, how to live in abundance, how to live in need. And then this capstone verse, I I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He wants to make sure that the Philippians understand the foundation for his contentment comes from Christ. And so often this verse is taken out of context. You see it printed on t-shirts or pencils or keychains. And usually, I think, when people print those things or wear those things, what they mean by them is that with Christ, you always end up on top. You're always the conqueror. You're always abounding. You always have what you really need. That's sort of the way it gets depicted. And that's not what Paul is saying. Or Paul is just saying, well, yes, but, you know, that's only half the equation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whether I have abundance or I don't have anything. That's what he's trying to say. That's the miraculous part of the verse. Paul's saying that he's, he can be content when he's at the bottom. He can be content when he gets conquered. Paul actually can't do all things because he can't get himself out of this prison cell. That's one thing he can't do. So you know he's not talking about always being on top. He's trying to help these people say, all seasons of life, I can find contentment in Christ. And when you have that, you do have a power. You do have a strength that's not depicted by a a strong man on a t-shirt or a keychain. Here's the key phrase here, I have learned. He says it twice. And I want to just go through the rest of the sermon, thinking about what, what has Paul learned and how has he learned it and how can we learn to be content? First of all, let me go back to verses 8 and 9, chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, 
anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and then circle this word, practice. Oh, you don't like that word, do you? Practice, practice these things. So first thing you have to do if you want to learn contentment is practice. Just say that word with me practice. Isn't it a beautiful word? No, no, you don't like that. I'd rather have a pill rather than practice. Can you give me the contentment pill? Well, yeah, but it comes in practice. It comes in over time, learning how to practice. And look what Paul's saying here in this, in verse eight, he's saying every part of human life is playing a role in your spiritual formation. Everything you think about, everything you learn, everything you receive, everything you, you've heard, everything you practice, all these good habits or bad habits, they're all, all forming you spiritually. They're all part of your spiritual formation. It's not like you go over here to do spiritual formation. No, you're being spiritually formed in everything you see, in everything you do, in everything you receive, in everything you practice, and every, every, every habit you have. It's actually shaping your soul right now. And it's either shaping your soul into the image of Christ or into the image of the world. And how we groan when you hear this word practice, practice. Can't we just get it through a pill? The answer is no. Think about the words from James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, how do I count that joy? When you meet a trial, do you think, oh, awesome. Joy is filling my heart. No. But why is James saying it? Because it's an opportunity to practice. See, if you never have a trial, you're never going to know if you can actually live with contentment. So the trial that's coming at you, maybe on the surface, it does have difficulties. I'm not trying to take that away. But underneath, there's a stream that you need to develop. There's a stream that needs to water your soul that doesn't have anything to do with surface events. And so you can count it all joy that these things are coming at you because there's an opportunity to practice. And he goes on to say, knowing the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. And steadfastness has its full effect. Well, what is that effect? Learning how to be content. Part of the full effect of the testing of your faith is learning to practice how to be content in that trial, not trying to just get over the trial, but to try to get through the trial with contentment. It takes practice. A couple of weeks ago, I went to visit somebody who was visiting the church, an older couple. I think they were probably in their 80s. A very fascinating, unusual life story they told me about the real persecution that they had to flee from, from their home country. They faced a lot of challenges uh, in the immigration process into America, especially because they had an infant. They told me stories of joblessness and accidents and near-death experiences. They told me about their current pain. They both have physical pain in their 80s that's not going to go away. It's just going to be managed and their limitations now at their age. But constantly through this 45-minute story, they kept saying this, Oh, but the Lord is so good. 
I just marveled. Because everything they told me seemed to be a difficult moment, a difficult trial. Something that you would say, well, how did you get out of that? Or how did you get through that? Or I can't believe that came to you in that way. And yet every, it was like a chorus of a song after every story. Oh, but the Lord is so good. How do you get to that place? You practice. You practice saying the Lord is good even in this trial, even in this joblessness, even in this near-death experience. And they have their scars, and they have their pains, and they have their limitations, but they have contentment. It's beautiful. It doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't come through a pill. It comes through practice. So how do we learn? How do we learn how to be content? We practice. Secondly, you notice we have to practice in every circumstance. And what's odd to me is that Paul's saying you have to practice being content in abundance. And I want to say, well, I thought that just kind of came along with abundance, right? I mean, that just got attached. I mean, you get abundance and guess what you get? What, guess what's the next car in line? Well, contentment because I kind of have everything. Isn't it true that if I have everything I need, then I don't need to practice. I'm just going to be content. What's the answer to that? Oh, no, no, no. It's definitely no. But we believe if we just get one more thing, then we're going to be content. See, you, you naturally said no, but somehow probably like me, you think, well, that's true, but, but if I got this, well, th- well then, then I really would be content. We live in one of the wealthiest countries ever, ever even thought of on the planet. Everyone here is in the 1% in the world. And are we a content society? Are we a content culture? No, we're some of the most discontent people. Because we think, oh, if I just had one more thing. It reminds me of the John D. Rockefeller quote, one of the richest men in history at the beginning of the 20th century. He was once asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. Most of us, you have this sort of dream, do you not? If I won the lottery. But then you kind of come back down to reality and say, well, if I just made, and it's something more realistic. And studies show it's usually about 15% more than what you currently make. So if I make 50,000, oh gosh, I mean, if I made 60, then, I mean, I'd have everything. But you know, when you, when you get to 60, what do you say? Oh, if I just had a little bit more, a little bit more. There's a great quote from the book, The Wise Man of Ecclesiastes. There's an evil I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing. Yet he doesn't have the power to enjoy them. That's vanity. That's our culture. That's our mindset. That if we just had one more thing, even in abundance. So you have to practice in your abundance to to, to not make your abundance your savior. And you also have to practice that your abundance actually isn't going to bring contentment. You have to learn to be content in your 
abundance in every circumstance. Number three, you must learn how to savor Jesus, which is why I mentioned this book. If you have trouble savoring Jesus, if you don't even know what that means, then this would be a helpful little book for you to read. Savoring, seeing something, having something, that when you hold it, you're happy to let go of everything else. That's the idea. I'm savoring this moment, meaning I'm letting go of all other moments. I'm completely focused on this moment. And the best way I can describe it, and many of you will know what I'm talking about, are people with a great cup of coffee. You've seen them. I don't drink coffee, but I've seen them. It's like, it's like ecstasy. I mean, they have their cup. They hold, they caress it. They smell it. They think about it. They go somewhere in their mind. I'm like, where did you go? You're somewhere. I mean, and you don't like chug it down. You take a sip and, mm, oh, you roll it around your mouth. Oh, mm. you're like, what in the world? But, but I want you to know that's what the Apostle Paul does with Jesus Christ. He savors Jesus. He's not like gulping him down. He, every little sip has incredible value. He's holding on to it. And as he holds on to it, all the other things that are sort of barking for his attention, he's like, I don't care about those things. Those, those things, the, the noise that they create in my soul, much less because I'm, I'm holding on, I'm savoring Jesus. And I want to just point out to you exactly where he does it here in chapter 3. So turn back with me, chapter 3, verse 7. And I just want you to notice, you can do this on your, on your own, just circling how many times in these four verses, 7 through 10, he mentions Christ. And imagine he's holding Christ in a prison cell like a cup of coffee. But whatever gain I had, whatever, whatever voices were coming from the outside, I count all those things as lost for the sake, and he takes a sip, of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loft because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I mean, I'm happy to get rid of these things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may sip on and gain Christ, and being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Christ and the power of Christ's resurrection, and may share Christ's sufferings and become like Christ. You feel that? Here we are in this Lenten season. And I wonder if you've taken time, and if you haven't, I would just encourage you to do so today. It would be, be very difficult for some of you because of family circumstance, but try to work it out where... You could just have 30 minutes with no other interruptions and see if you can savor Jesus Christ. Don't try to catch up on all your Bible reading. Don't try to read every book that's on your shelf. Just just 30 minutes like with a cup of coffee and taking one little sip at a time and savoring Jesus That's how you practice contentment. Fourth, 
thing. How do you learn contentment? Well, you can learn from other people, like the Apostle Paul. You see this in verse 9 in chapter 4. We've already read it. He says, whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. See, you need somebody that you can say, I I see how they do it, and then I want to follow in their footsteps. That's totally fine. And I can learn how to be content by watching someone else. And what you could do, and again, you could do this in your time, is just to go back through Philippians and think, what has Paul learned and I'm just going to apply those to myself. We don't have time to pick. There could be 50 of them in here. But I'm just going to point out a few things. And if you just go back and say, okay, this thing that he learned, it helped him in contentment. Let me just list a few of them. Chapter 1, verse 12. Again, helpful to just go back, circle it yourself. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You've got to circle this. What had happened to Paul? He got put into prison. And what he learned is that God can turn personal losses into eternal gain. Oh, if, we, if, if we could just learn just this one thing. I'm I'm telling you, friends, if you just would apply one of these things to your life, your contentment would just begin to, to skyrocket. Paul understands that his prison was an assignment, not a detour. And I I wonder how many of us live detour lives. I mean, this is the way we want to go, but I'm constantly being detoured off, and I I can never really actually stay on the road. I kind of cross it to the other side. And Paul's saying, if you live that way, you're never going to be content because you're never going to have much time on that road because that's not the road. That's some other kind of dream. And Paul has learned that all these things whether he gets to stand up on Mars Hill in Greece and pronounce the gospel to the smartest people in the world, or he's stuck in a Roman prison cell, six hours chained to one prison guard, he's on assignment. None of these things are detours. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am put here. If you really understand that, if you really understand that no matter what has happened, you're on assignment for things that maybe you're going to see in your lifetime and maybe things you're not, it's going to help your contentment. You have an assignment to your spouse, to your children, to a city, to a church, to a business. St. Patrick, we celebrated his Life and death just this past week. I hope you wore green on Wednesday and didn't get a pinch. St. Patrick, he was lived about the same time Augustine did, around the 400s A.D. He grew up in England, and he was on a shoreline in England when some Irish pirates at 16 captured him and enslaved him for six years. Just try to imagine. There's a few people here who are 16. You went out for a walk on the beach. You got captured. And you live as a slave in Ireland now for the next six years. He escaped when he was 22. He became a priest, trying to sort of put his old life behind him. He learned all about the pagan rituals and the sort of the gross underside of the Irish community. 
And he was trying to get rid of that, sort of block that part out. And after 20 years of being a priest in England, he had a dream one night that an Irish man, just like the Macedonian call for Paul, said, oh, holy servant boy, would you come and tell us about Jesus? And so St. Patrick spent the rest of his time evangelizing Ireland. And he knew at that point his enslavement was not a detour. It had been an assignment. See, if you understand this, you're going to go a long way in really understanding contentment. Second thing, we can, again, so many to, li- to list here. Chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You've got to circle that. I'm going to tell you this about every one of them. So important, so difficult to learn. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. That's a key to contentment. Paul had to learn that his identity was completely found in Christ. Before he met Christ, Paul, like you, like me, like everyone else, had to prop himself up. He had to create a self, a self-image, an identity. And he did that under this social compulsions, as one commentator says. He, he fabricated a self. And you can see what he did. He tells you exactly how he fabricated himself. It's very fascinating. Chapter 3, verse 4. Though I myself, see, this is my old self, I had reasons to be confident. This is how I propped myself up. And he propped himself up religiously. You can prop yourself up religiously and be lost. You can prop yourself up materialistically or any other way and be completely lost. And then he lists all these things, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. I I had propped myself up. I had fabricated a religious self. And you know what? That, that, That religious self being perfect religiously, that wasn't contentment. That was prison. That self always has to be managed, always has to be manipulated. Paul understood that. That self always has to get feedback to say you're successful or you're smart, you're important or you're interesting, you're busy or you're beautiful, you're liked or you're loved. We, we all understand this, especially if you're young. You've created an avatar or an icon of yourself online, and you have to prop it up. You have to constantly feed pictures and a narrative that's not completely accurate of yourself. And you prop it up and you get likes and you like that you get likes. So you keep posting the things that you get like. You just prop up this avatar or this icon and it's exhausting. That's an exhausting kind of life. It's the life that Jesus said you have to lose in order to follow him. Anyone who wants to come after me, what's the very first thing he has to do? Deny himself. You have to deny all these props that have been propping you up and giving you something religiously, service-wise, materialism, intelligence, beauty. I mean, you can just name it. Those are the things that are not creating contentment. Those are the things that are harming your soul. And Paul has to learn, for me to live is Christ. So many Christians, including pastors, they have no idea what this actually looks like. Because you can get behind a pulpit and prop yourself up. 
to make yourself look good to other people. And that's not contentment. That's confusion. That's prison. Third, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. How, again, how, how are we learning from Paul? Our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his. At 57, I say amen and amen. Because the older I get, the more important this verse becomes. I'm awaiting a Savior who will transform Paul Phillips' lowly body, which is getting more and more lowly as each year passes, that will be like his. I was with a friend who's a peer, and we were looking through some old photos, and there was one of him in college, and... uh, that was, you know, in college he had the most amount of time to lift weights, exercise, and I was like, wow. He, and he said, I have one more body in me. And I thought, no, pal, you don't. I mean, I'm bless your soul that you think you do, but you don't. And I thought, well, I, I've got one more body in me too, but it's not in this world. See, when you know that and you're 80... You have constant pain. This brings contentment. Last, I could keep going. Chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious, but pray with everything, with thanksgiving and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. This is how you learn how to be content. You learn how to pray. But you have to learn how to pray about God's kingdom and God's will and not your kingdom and your will. See, so many of our prayers are just, are just, God, would you continue to prop up my self-image? I need health. I need wealth. I need prosperity. I need safe passage. I need to get into the school. I need to have a wife or a husband. I need to have a, you see what I'm saying? We're asking God to prop the very thing up that he's trying to knock down. And, and, and you're not going to get it. Or if you get it, it's going to be to your destruction. So Paul says you've got to really understand how to pray. And when you understand how to pray God's kingdom and God's will, then you can be in prison and you can be, in, you can be content. These things take time. They take patience. It's not something you're going to go do in a half an hour and say, you know, I got that sermon down. It's going to take a, a lifetime of effort. So it's worth reflecting this afternoon. Have you learned to be content? Are you content? Would your friend, your spouse, your child, would they say you're content in prosperity or in prison? Do you see your life as an assignment for God or is your life just a series of detours? You're always trying to get on the right road, never happy where you are. Have you reached the place to say, I'm not going to prop up my fabricated self anymore? For me to live is Christ. To die, gain. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to this text humbled because it's reading us. We're not just reading it. We're not just sort of gleaning bits of information to kind of stick in our religious tool belt. 
Now, you've used these words from the Apostle Paul to examine deep parts of our soul, of our self. All of us here have little props. Some of us are completely propped up by our self-image, by the world, by things that we think would give us value and contentment. Would you kindly, in your mercy, pull those props away? Have us fall down on our knees and say, for me to live as Christ. Would you strengthen our souls for that journey? The journey away from ourselves and towards you in contentment. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song together.